Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. During this month of February 2024, we will be having a series of discussions about digital technology and AI in the run-up to an event that the Foundation for Science and Technology is holding on the 28th of February in London. For the first of these podcasts, I am delighted to be joined by Joel L. Benjamin, JB, tech entrepreneur and founder of Cryotech. JB, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. So, before we dive into some of the issues on uh, tech and so on, tell us a, a bit about yourself and tell us a bit about your company, Cryotech. Um, a bit about myself. Well, I'm Jean Brunel, we're Benjamin. I was born in Birmingham in the 1980s. I have uh, I was homeschooled, none of this private education coming from an Ivy League kind of a thing, which I think makes me kind of the only CEO at this level who is not part of that. Um, raised in Birmingham at a time of national unrest. If anybody knows their history, I was raised at a time of the poll tax riots. So it's kind of in my DNA to be a little bit rebellious. What is cryotech? Well, cryotech is basically the summation of that. At cryotech, I created the world's first post-quantum encrypted video chat messenger, Vox Messenger. Basically, it is a form of encryption, lattice-based cryptography, which is in orders of magnitude two to 300 times stronger than the current elliptic curve standard, which is used by WhatsApp, Signal, and all of my other competitors. Cool. Well, we're going to dive into some of that in a minute. Um, but I did want to ask you a little bit about digital privacy as a sort of more general concept, which is behind some of these things. And, and I know a lot of your focus has been on digital privacy. What are the key issues for individuals and organizations behind this whole digital privacy debate? I would say one of the key issues, particularly with the advent and mass adoption of artificial intelligence, is that people forget the value of their data. Our personal data, be that biometrical, biometric, physical, location, all of that data has massive value to advertising agencies and other organizations. They need that information because it allows them to customize and target their ads directly at you. It also, of course, has other issues that your data, especially in the business context, has the value of giving people access to your systems, your banking systems, your email, which of course mass creates a massive security issue. Now, what you'll find is that most of the big hacks that take place, particularly in corporate and enterprise worlds, are actually the result of a very basic form of hacking. There's no Mr. Robot stuff here. It is actually mostly the result of social engineering. And social engineering is where you hack the easiest component of any security system, which is the human. Now, to get rid of the buzzword very quickly, social engineering, what is social engineering? Social engineering can be as easy as going on your Facebook profile and realizing that you seem to be obsessed with cats and have lots of preternatural pictures and memes of cats, which would allow us to potentially assume or infer that your passwords may potentially involve cats. I mean, social engineering is the process of finding information about you that's freely available that allows you to construct a profile and thereby creating a profile, create a reliable framework for accessing or inferring your password. Yeah, I can see that a whole lot of those things are joined together and a lot of people won't think about them uh, very much. Now, I'm going to ask a scary question here. Um, uh, so help me out slightly. How do your products work? Uh, and if that's going to be too complicated, break it down into a few little bits for me. The way our system during work is we are actually leveraging open source uh, post-quantum algorithms. The ones we use are Round 5 and Falcon, both of which were semi-finalists in the NIST encryption competition, which is important because of course you want to use algorithms which are validated. 
Now, at the moment, our system is is centralized. And the reason for that is because we had to build, we built Vox Messenger, as in me, myself, and I, with zero budget. So we had to build using the tools freely available around us. The database at the moment is based on Google Firebase, which probably sends a shiver through everybody's spine that hear it. But again, because we are using end-to-end -end encryption, which basically means the data, the messages, the content is all encrypted on your handset before it ever goes anywhere else, we actually find that using uh, Google Firebase has allowed us to create the product very rapidly and in a very iterative way. Now, because we can actually demonstrate at request, if anybody needs it, we can actually demonstrate that your data ends up as being absolute gobbledygook inside of the database. It basically means that even if somebody was able to gain access to Google, the Google Firebase instance itself, the information would be useless. Every single piece of information in our database is fully encrypted, be that the metadata of your name, be, or, the, or even the time of when you made a video call, all of it is encrypted. And of course, your private keys are kept on, are generated and kept on your handset. So at no point do we have any copy of your decryption keys. On top of that, we have another unique feature, which is Incinerate. In Vox Messenger, with the Incinerate feature, we can actually demonstrate how once you press that delete, that Incinerate button, it is not only deleted from the senders and receivers handsets, but it is also immolated or burnt from the actual database as well. We are also incorporating our other product, Vox Crypto, directly into Vox Messenger, because we find that people are safest when there is a there is no uh, when people are communicating about what they want to do with their money and actually enacting that flow at the point of communication. Because what happens often when we're making deals, people will insert themselves in the middle of the deal via email or some other hacked interface to gain access to the funds. We, have, we are solving that by incorporating your financial transaction capability inside of your communications directly, which is the version three, which is coming mm. out later this year. Well, I mean, I guess my first comment is there's quite a few people from the political castes who've been using WhatsApp. And we've seen over the last few weeks how some of that's then been reported later. So there's there's a little bit uh, of, of perhaps jealousy that they, they weren't using some of the things you've been talking about. Um, <laughs> But let me take you somewhere else. So we talked about uh, individual products. We talked about that what individuals can do. But let's scale that up a little bit to the country. Obviously, we're in the UK. Some of this is global. Understand that. But for the UK itself, to what extent does the UK government, do regulators in the UK, have the right approach to digital privacy? I'll be completely honest. They do not. The online safety bill that is hit, operating here in the United Kingdom is nothing more than a direct attack on our personal privacy. The claim that it will help to decrease the number of criminals discussing child pornography and human trafficking on the internet and our communications is beyond laughable. The announcement by the British government that IT companies operating in the United Kingdom should be willing to hand over encrypted and unencrypted metric data concerning their customers without warrant or denotice is quite frankly a, an attack on democracy, as well as an attack on our personal civil privacy. These are all things that happen when you have a government that, if we're being completely honest, is operating overtly fascistly. They have no interest in protecting consumer privacy. I would suggest that the online safety bill and other policies like it are, if anything, uh, designed to protect government-based agencies from investigation from any by other people, if anything else. Now, 
to deal with this scenario because how could we a tech company quite you know in our right mind operate a messaging platform in a country that has those kinds of laws and then and then knowingly attract an international audience to us we couldn't we'd be irresponsible if we did and that is the reason why all three of my companies not just cryotech are actually going into the are actually being wrapped into a holding company that we recently founded in southern ireland called akuma engineering limited which basically means things like the online safety bill or other laws and policies that would uh, that could be leveraged on us to give up customer data, we do not have to comply with and we can vociferously fight. We have, in fact, it has led us, in fact, to develop new technology, which kind of makes the online safety bill concept pointless. We have been developing a piece of technology called Guardian Overwatch, which allows us to detect patterns of child pornography, human trafficking, and, and other banned content in a real-time encrypted messaging stream without needing decryption keys. It allows us to detect these patterns without needing to violate anybody's personal privacy or hack them in the name of the government. So in answer to your question, summation, no, because this government is not uh, handling this correctly in any shape or form, and if anything, will scare more tech companies away from actually headquartering here and actually even storing data here in the future. That's an interesting uh, point of view and very clearly put. I guess the other side of that is, is the word safety in online safety? I mean, do you have any sympathy, at least for the aim, if if not for the uh, the way it's been done? The aim of providing online safety can be better uh, served by instead ensuring that the top seven tech companies that operate the majority of the top surface of the internet are actually doing their job. As opposed to pushing the blame onto the consumer, we should actually be pushing the onus onto the technology provider. So for example, when the British government was having their open cons consultations on the online safety bill, why didn't they approach big tech companies or even tech companies based in their own country and actually ask the question, is this a good idea? But they didn't. It's like the public consultation for the digital pound that was launched last year. It was a public consultation that happened with no public announcement and wasn't effectively a consultation because the British government had already decided what companies they were going to pick to build the infrastructure of the digital pound before even revealing the public, so-called public consultation. Mm -hmm. So in principle, yes, the idea of an online safety bill is a fine idea but its delivery is less than inept and it causes one to question what is the true purpose of the online safety bill because it's not designed for consumer safety. If anything, it creates and breeds an environment where the consumer should be even more afraid that their data is going to be Cambridge analytica away from them. Okay. Uh, strong stuff. That's what we want to hear. Um, let me take you to, into another direction. So we talked about uh, safety and and security. Um, you've also done uh, some thinking about digital equity. And first of all, break out what this term actually means, because it's bandied around a bit. And so what do we mean by digital equity? And then talk a little bit about what you think the situation is in again in the UK. OK, so digital equity. Equity is basically the concept of a truly even playing field. So at the moment, as I'm sure you've probably heard, you've probably heard the whole world banging on about equality equality this, equality that. Equality is a fine concept, but it's also an incredibly dumb 
concept. Yes, I can hear people, and I can already hear people sharpening up their cancellation knives now as they hear me say that. If you're going to have a world framed up in equality, in true equality, what are you what are you selecting the standard line as? What are you setting that bar yeah. as? Are you picking the strongest male to be your symbol of what we should all be equal to? Are you picking your weakest person as the person we should all be equal to? The reality is, despite many pontificating speeches by many world leaders, no, we are not created equal. We are all born fairly unequal. We are all born with different traits. Some people have more of a good trait. Some people have more of a negative trait. Yada, yada, yada. What we seek is parity and equity. Parity and equity basically means that you have the same access to resources, the same access to the same start. You do not have somebody, I'll give you an example, just finding that they find it easier to get a CEO job just because they were best friends with six of the Bullingham boys. That isn't equity. No, 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 no. That is a complete Nepo society. And if we're brutally honest about the United Kingdom, we kind of invented the Nepo society, did we not? That's part and parcel of having an empire, actually, is creating a bit of a Nepo society. Equity is giving everybody equal access to the same resources and the same level of resourcing. Now, the way that can be done in technology, sorry to, uh, sorry to stop you off there, the way that can be done with technology is to ensure that everybody has access to the same, not just the same technology, but also access to the same level of education about that technology. You know, it's not, it has not escaped me. I used to be senior lecturer of computer science at Ravensbourne University, London, my old alma mater. And I was teaching two different degrees and I was also teaching BT professionals, cybersecurity. And one of the things I discovered very quickly is that if you're middle to upper class, there is a higher chance that you'll have been taught more elements about how to handle technology than if you were lower class, as an example. So here in the United Kingdom, yes, we have a very classist structure, which is still very evident in the infrastructure around us today. And achieving equity in that kind of environment is next to impossible. If anything, we have lower social mobility now in the United Kingdom than we ever used to, despite the technology. So that's the problem. Um, it'd be glib to say, what's the solution? But how do we head towards a solution? Who needs to do things? The government, schools, local authorities? What are the kind of elements for digital equity specifically? Okay, so I like how you mentioned these three different layers. You have government, then you have the council, and then you have the different state agencies within that. Unfortunately, it all starts with the government because the way in which the current system is operated, the schools do not get funding if the governments don't say so. The local council doesn't get funding if the government doesn't say so. And the problem we have in the United Kingdom is that we have every single government that we get coming in becomes biased to their own side. So for example, if we look at the case of the recently bankrupted Birmingham, yes, this, the, the borough of Birmingham became bankrupt in the United Kingdom last year. And this happened, why? Because the Birmingham and the West Midlands have been predominantly socialist for the longest time. And when you have a Tory government, what they do is, just as by the way, this is the same as if we had a Labour government, by the way, what the prevailing government does is consistently squeeze the funding to every borough that is not aligned with them politically. 
in order to push them to vote for them in the next electoral in the next electoral cycle. This happens with every government. This shows me that here in the United Kingdom, at any least, at the very least, we have a two-party governmental system that has zero interest in equity for us all. If this is the reason why I'm so passionate about smart contracts and the blockchain. And we've been, we are conducting research and we are passionate about finding councils that would work collaboratively with us to test the concept of switching over civil functions like, you know, rubbish collection, making sure the schools are funded, all this kind of stuff to smart, con smart contract functions. You know, anywhere in local council or government or governance where people are responsible for large sums of money, we should be replacing the human components with a smart contract because we have not had one government in 20 years, I jest you not, that has demonstrated that they are spending money correctly for the majority of us. So there's quite a lot of politics in there, and I get that. Um, but I don't want to leave completely depressed by this conversation. <laughs> are there are there steps that can be taken to look at digital equity to look at um what are the uh, the barriers to accessing digital resources for say the bottom quintile um and 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 to think about things that that can be put in place with different partners um can, can we see an upside to some of this okay i'll give you an example did you know that uh, covid when covid hit the united kingdom it really highlighted the level of disparity in this country. I mean, the reality is, is that uh, there is a third of the population of the United Kingdom that does not have access to proper speeds of internet. Half of the country does not have access to fiber optic. Now, if we are a country, a first world country like the United Kingdom, claiming to be a digital first entity, where we're trying to claim that the population must live and work and breathe with a new digital country, then that needs to be supported with the access to technology. Back in the day, if you were poor and you couldn't buy a computer, what did you do? You went to the library and you had access to a computer that had access to the internet. That has not been the case since COVID because the government used the opportunity to close a lot of the libraries very quickly. So unfortunately, I hate to say this, there isn't much of an upside until we are able to change governance we really can't. I mean, until companies like mine get to the multi-million user status, I mean, bear in mind, I'm as a company leader, I'm incredibly passionate about compassionate capitalism, which is a concept where companies take up the mantle of helping their consumers and the general public around them by doing more for the local communities that they are making money from. Why has this become a necessity? Because the governments themselves have proven to themselves to be incompetent. You know, they're not... As a, as a leader of a company, it matters to me if my consumers and workers are happy. Happy workers equals ha good word of mouth equals more consumer, po more positive consumer reach. This mm. is simple mathematics to me. There's a reason why when we generate a certain amount of profits, we're going to be putting it into a, into a smart, into a wallet that can be accessed by users of our technology as a form of universal basic income, because it is possible to create this sustainably with this technology. There is no reason not to. So I would say the upside to all of this is, as we move into the 21st century and we see a greater adoption and utility of artificial intelligence, 
and we see more and more companies like I'm hoping I influence more people to be compassionate capitalists. Hopefully we would see a, a, see a future where we do not need centralized governments. Actually, we have a future where smart contracts and blockchain can be trusted to ensure that our taxes are not being embezzled and are not being used in silly projects and are actually going to fund the things that we're paying for, like maintenance of roads, the ensuring that teachers are paid, ensuring that doctors and nurses are paid. All of these things, which to, which should be fairly easy things, are just not being done. Mm. Well, you said the magic words, artificial intelligence, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. And uh, obviously it's rapidly developing, huge excitement, um, and you hear almost in the same breath, really great possibilities of what it might do and significant concerns of what it might do. Um, and that's prompted a lot of uh, discussions nationally and internationally about regulating AI in some way or other. Um, and I'm just interested, what are your views on what's happened so far in terms of thinking about regulating and, and where you see some of that going? Um, even though I may not see them on the cover, as it were, to be pro-regulation and pro-government, there are some things I am pro-regulation on. And there's two of them, in fact. Cryptocurrency and artificial intelligence. I'd like to say that I'm inc I would love it. I'd love to be able to say that I'm incredibly happy with everything that AI is being used for. But when you start reading articles like those written by 928 magazine, in which it's revealed that giant AIs are being created with esoteric names to pick and assign target lists in family residences, then you start to realize the true horror of what AI is being used for. So in terms of regulation, we should most definitely be regulating artificial intelligence and robotics, because the reality is we should not be using these things for war. AI has the power to make every single one of us a force multiplier for good. The ability for AI to enhance our own natural skills and ability is nothing short of mind-blowing. But what is just as equally mind-blowing is that those with the money, those with the influence, those with the compute and computing units necessary to advance this technology are doing what? They're selling it to the highest bidder and they're using it for the biggest, most prof profitable thing happening right now in the 21st century, which is war, basically. AI has the power to bring about a period of abundance and true equity for all of us if it's used correctly. And this is the reason why at all of my companies, whenever we are building a project involving artificial intelligence, we don't just look at it as, yo, let's go and get an open AI key. No, we actually take open source AIs. We, and then we then investigate the data sets and the models that they're using, and then we enhance and improve them to get around the issues that we have. For example, in computer vision, one of the biggest issues in computer vision is the inability for, for computer-based systems like facial recognition to accurately detect and identify a black person. Why? Because the four top image data sets all used for computer vision have less than 1% diversity included in them. Companies are not seeking to fix this because at the moment, no big, no big super organized black-led organizations have sued anybody over it. And nobody in the industry will, ostensibly, until somebody does. Why? Because innovation is not promoted, but is instead stifled by easy profits. 
there is no e there is no need to fix something unless you feel financially threatened seems to be the general modus operandi of the of this current market as it were so let's think a little bit about regulation of ai and how it could be done um and you know one way is to in some way regulate some parts of the technology in 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 other ways it's to regulate some part of the use of those technologies uh, or a combination of the two um and obviously you have this issue where so many things are done globally how one country introducing regulations uh, is is going to make a difference or not um so just thinking about how to actually do it, are, are people going about it the right way? Have you have you seen some encouraging signs? I would suggest, and I know a lot of people are going to hate me for this. Um, I would actually suggest the European Union has actually the correct approach. The uh, EU's Responsible AI Act is a good idea. Now, if you speak to a lot of my peers in the industry, they'll say, no, it's stifling technology, man. Why should I be held responsible for stuff that I'm building? What the hell, man? The people that the Responsible AI Act affects mostly is not people like me, who mm. have flexible infrastructure, and at this time, small, moderately small numbers of users. It affects Facebook. It affects Apple. It affects Google. They're the only ones crying about it. Why? Because it means that they will have to completely and entirely redesign how they store user data. Why? Because despite people like Google having the slogan of don't be evil, all of these people are only ever focused on one thing, how to make as much profit as possible for your shareholders. Screw everything else. The Responsible AI Act actually gets you to think about your consumer. It forces you to be responsible for what your technology does to the end user. Mm. To me... This was all I always felt so like as a CEO, I would always be responsible for the technology I build. Seriously, if you are a CEO of a company, you're effectively a parent and your products are your children. And unfortunately, we are surrounded by personality CEOs who literally are devoid of all of any sense of personal accountability or responsibility. Well, I have to say you're uh, one of the most active and dynamic CEOs that I've I've talked to, and it's uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. I did want to ask you one thing: as a black CEO running a tech business in the UK, what's that like? Are there specific challenges? Are there specific opportunities? What are some of the experiences that you might want to share? <laughs> um, being black in corporate Britain is very interesting. You'll find the word cool is assigned to you a hell of a lot in describing you to describe you and you'll find that that is the kind of go-to euphemistic word used in tech for black people now this is jb he's like really cool you know i've had that used uh, as a describer for me in a lot of companies including some companies who you would have thought would have definitely known better internally the united kingdom has been proven by even itself to be an institutionally racist country even the chief of London Met Police admits that this is an institution race. What does that mean? Because it's kind of like a buzzword, like post-quantum encryption. Institutionally racist means that as opposed to being like in America, where they'll just burn a cross in your front yard, as opposed to being very obvious like that, here in the United Kingdom, we instead go, racism doesn't exist, we're all equal, oh yeah. But you'll find that if you're black and you come from a council estate, it's a lot harder to get a loan than if you weren't. You'll find that 
when you're going for certain university positions, if that university is listed as a university that provides personnel to GCHQ, you'll find that all of a sudden you're not going to be admitted. Irrespective of how much you may speak the King's English and irrespective of how well you may know, know your subject, it doesn't matter. I've been, I'll give you an example. I've been in jobs where I've been earning 200 grand a year and leading teams of over 100 people. And I've still had people put their feet up on my desk and say to me, don't know how you got this job, JB. You're too cool. Um, funding is a lot harder to get. Even with the so-called black-led VC companies, when approached, these companies don't actually help you. Instead, they just say to you, are you already revenue generating of at least 80 grand a month? I got to be honest, if I were, why would I be coming to you? You know, it's one of those. So we have these black funded, black facing venture funding firms, which ostensibly, if you go all the way at the back, past the image, past the pictures, past the photography, they're about as black led as the royal family. In other words, they're not. So I would say, being a black CEO in the United Kingdom is actually kind of depressing, really. Um, you're going to have a lot of people telling you you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. If you look like me, um, you're going to tell people, you're going to have a lot of people telling you that you should cut your hair, be fit more the stereotype of the business black guy, which is he wears a suit, looks like a Tory and never says boo to a goose and is about as authentic as, again, of a British royal family, which is German, not English anyway. Um the reason I've, I'd, I'd say that, I mean, I myself am a, an, a, an alum of Y Combinator Startup School and Pioneer and other startup programs. And again, you'll notice if you're black, you have to behave a certain way. And if you do not behave that way, you will not get funded. You will not get advanced. And I've got to be honest, it's taken me a long time to get happy with being with me. I am mm. happy with me. Me, I'm happy with who I am. I will not uh fit or conform to something which i know is not me but serves somebody else even if that means those other people may give me millions why would i you know was and and it should also be important to my consumers and my shareholders that i have this line of reasoning because if i'm not somebody who's going to be truthful and authentic about myself how can they trust me with their money how can they trust me with their data how can they trust me with their privacy well, let's end on a happy note. Um, you're clearly very successful, but what's next? What's your focus over the next three or four years? What have you got for yourself or what have you got coming up? Okay, so our focus is we have Cryotech, where we have the post-quantum encrypted social media networks, which we're seeking to replace all of the current Web2 paradigms with. At Dijin Technologies, we have solved marketless camera sync and have some of the best computer vision and sensors available. So what is the next six months forwards looking like? Developing more of that tech, getting that tech out there. I mean, we have, you know, we have amazing things like we have the world's first um, lossless comp compression codec for 3D streaming on low bandwidth, which is going to be coming out soon. We have Guardian Overwatch, which allows us to provide online safety without giving up privacy. You know, we have um, some amazing products already out there and we have more of it to come. The reality is, is we are doing everything we can to fulfill our promise, which is by 2030, being able to create a product and ecosystem that can sustainably generate not just profit for our shareholders, 
but also revenue that can be put into a universal basic income wallet, which people can access freely via our products, whoever they are, wherever they are. Fantastic. Well, listen, JB, I could talk to you all day, but that is the end of our time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here in Blather. It's been great. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Jorel Benjamin, JB, tech entrepreneur and founder of Cryotech. On the 28th of February 2024, the Foundation for Science and Technology will be holding an event entitled Can AI Be Regulated? And if so, how? Details of that event, which is free to attend in person or online, can be found on the website of the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on the website are details of our other events, our journal and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.